Hey there! This episode of Zonin Canada is yet another retrospective, this time on early late night anime on Teletoon. This includes the two Pat Labor movies, Ninja Scroll, and Royal Space Force Wings of Anyamis. When Teletoon was first promoting these films, they would consistently mispronounce Wings of Anyamis as Wings of Hanayamis, and unfortunately that seemed to have a very big impact on me because I mispronounced it that way for this entire episode. Uh, I'm not going to go back and fix it, so please go easy on me. Thanks. Welcome to Zonan Canada. Uh, I'm your host, Jesse Betteridge. I apologize that there was no episode of the podcast last month. I My goal has been to have one episode of Zonan Canada out every month this year, and unfortunately I have failed. I apologize, uh, but I am still going to try and get 12 episodes out before the year is out. Fingers crossed that I'll pull that off. Uh, but this month, we're going to be talking about anime on Teletoon, which is a thing that actually happened. And uh, joining me this time around is Ashley, who we had on the show previously uh, earlier this year. Uh, Ashley, you want to give a quick introduction to yourself again? Um, Hi, my name is Ashley Hacker. I'm a visual effects artist. I have a Twitter account at AshleyUncia.com, where I basically scream about BL, bad Star Trek jokes about Azure Lane, and various computer things I'm working on at the time. And Ashley, Pat Labor has a very deep significance. Of course, sorry. To Pat Labor. I understand as well. Yeah, Pat Labor was one of the anime that, uh, that ran on Teletoon in those early days, and that's sort of the era that we're going to be looking at. Now, Teletoon, as you may currently know it, is a, uh, is a 24 hour, uh, youth oriented animation station in Canada, but it wasn't always that way. Earlier this year, we did an episode talking about the new Adult Swim Canada that launched, uh, that is run by Chorus Entertainment. And in that episode, we also pointed out that Teletoon at Night, which was Teletoon's adult block, came to an end shortly before that new network launched, or that new, that new station launched. Uh, that station is now all, all of adult animation that Chorus has their fingers in now goes straight to Adult Swim Canada, even if it's not an Adult Swim property. But before this new strategy came about, Teletoon was a 24-hour animation station that was targeted at all ages. Now, it's worth emphasizing, Teletoon launched in 1997. When they launched, they were not a children's channel. They were an all-ages animation channel. They ran content for children during the day, content for families in the evening, and content targeted at adults late at night. Some Um, of that was pretty darn adult. Some of it was pretty darn adult. Some of it was very much not adult at all. They had an interesting selection of shows at that time, to say the least. It was a very interesting time for cable at that point, and that's kind of what I'm hoping we can paint a picture of here at this point for people who might not remember or people who might not have been around at that time. It's interesting to note this because Teletoon had an adult block going late at night, or an adult targeted lineup going, five years before such a thing was even thinkable with Cartoon Network and Adult Swim. A lot of people from outside of Canada may not realize that Teletoon was actually one of the first stations internationally, or the first animation stations internationally to have programming both for children and adults on the same channel space. And people who live in Canada, I think, might take that for granted, because it's actually, like, 
kind of illegal to do that in many countries, or at least goes against broadcast regulation in many countries, especially in Europe. To this day, a lot of foreign versions of Cartoon Network, they can't, they legally cannot have an Adult Swim or Adult Swim equivalent block late at night. Teletoon was actually kind of a, um, an innovator in that area. They were one of the first ones to do that. Uh, but the problem, and I think I, I talked about this a little back in the Adult Swim uh, episode as well, is that at that time, content, animated content that you would run and target at adults was a little, uh, was a little rare, <laughs> to say the least. And as a result, you get a bit of a, uh, an eclectic lineup. So Teletoon launched back in 1997, and I was a w- little wiener kid who could not stay up and watch a lot of this stuff. But, um, Ashley, you're a few years older, so I think you, you were there when this, when Teletoon first launched and, and kind of took everything in, right? Um, yeah, I, I, the only thing I'd argue is that at that time, you didn't really know things were launching. Mm-hmm. You, I, I'm a teenager in high school, and I'm really plugged into what the CRTC is authorizing for new channels and such. So basically, as, just as one many day, children were, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So just one day, there's new channels. There's a space one and some other stuff, and there's a cartoon channel. And suddenly that's, that's in our lives. Teletoon launched with a whole slew of other basic cable channels. This is something that had been in the works in like the Canadian broadcasting industry for a number of years because, you know, there were, in other countries like the United States, cable had become a thing. And there have been all sorts of specialty channels running in the U.S. and in other countries for, for a long time. And Canada was quite far behind in that area. Like we didn't, like we weren't getting Cartoon Network. We weren't getting Bravo, we weren't getting all these uh, other news stations that were that were airing in, in the U.S. and other countries. But the strategy that the regulators and broadcasters were trying to develop here was that instead of importing those channels from the U.S., Canadian broadcasters would develop equivalents to those channels. And, you know, whoever would pitch a certain type of channel would essentially create not, not, not so much a mandate, but just kind of a, a description of what areas this kind of this station would encompass yeah they needed like entire proposals for what percentage would be canadian content and everything else because you just can't just throw up your own channel without the crtc's permission and there were channels that came before that like discovery channel canada came around 1995 so like there were there was some late there was some ground late for like cable channels deep type cable channels but yeah it was a couple years until uh we started getting teletoon or like science fiction oriented stuff yeah, and yeah, Space was one of the stations that launched around the same time as Teletoon as same well. Same day, actually. Same day, yeah. And the idea was that each of these stations would encompass a genre, and they would submit a proposal with a description of what the genre that they covered encompassed. And the idea is that, moving forward, they would occupy the space of that genre in Canadian broadcasting, and they would be the sole party responsible for covering that genre because the idea is that canada has a lower pretty low population so so to avoid different stations competing with each other and cannibalizing the audience they would you would have a a a section that was or one broadcaster that was responsible for covering a certain genre to make sure that area was covered and then the idea is that they would in addition to airing foreign content part of that genre they would also produce canadian content related to that genre Obviously, we can now say this is a very misguided idea because John, this idea of genre protection uh, was eliminated um, almost a decade ago now, I think around like 2011 or 2012. But this was the 
mentality that cable broadcasting operated under in Canada for a long time. Inter like international animated programming is something that Teletoon essentially designated themselves as covering. And I, I believe they specifically mentioned anime in their original proposal. I'm not 100% sure on that, but part of their part of their commitment to covering the genre of animation in Canada would be to cut would be to include animated programming from around the world targeted at different ages. And anime was something that perfectly into that into that idea. So, I think it's important to emphasize that when all these stations launched and they had, you know, their their genre obligations, you know, their their intent of covering as much ground as possible from the get-go. It it made sense that they came off as being much more experimental at that time than I think we are used to cable being today where everything is very um homogenous and every station is trying to be as general appeal as possible. But like this late 90s period of these new this new slew of basic cable um content launching um was a highly experimental time. Like basically after watershed hours, Canadian channels were were showing pretty much anything between showcase and space and teletoon, some other channels. There was some wild stuff that today I don't think you could find on cable without paying extra. And for a few uh eighteen plus uh filters to make sure it's not being watched by children. Yes. You there were there were more this was the period where there I think there were probably more boobs than ever. That's what I was about to say. I saw so many boobs so many on boobs. cable. Like you could you could not escape them after nine PM after a certain point. Uh, it was probably the highest concentration of boobs you would find on English language Canadian TV at any point in history, because you know they had like these stations had to establish themselves as as something new, something I guess <laughs> relevant, something experimental, something daring. And anyone who was watching like young and watching TV at that time will uh, will remember staying up late and watching thing just random weird experimental borderline porn on uh, on showcase and bravo uh but of course given that teletoon was not a children's channel they you know tried to get in on that as well with their own adult lineup but the problem is as i touched on before there wasn't enough actual adult content that they could get their hands on to to like sustain that all properly uh so for everything they ran late at night like like um like Duckman or, you know, as we'll get into, things like Ninja Scroll. Uh, there was also weird children's shows which they would slot in and try to pass off as adult content because they didn't really know what to do with them. Like, I remember they aired the Nudnik show. They aired the Savage Dragon uh, USA Network show, which I think, which I'm pretty sure was packaged with Duckman and a few others. Do you remember, do you remember some other things they aired? I remember Captain Star and honestly never liking that show, and I have, really? I have like almost lost friendships over that. I like the show; Captain just Star, never really impressed me. Captain Star was one they they did run at, at different hours of the day, though. But they, yeah, but it also played later. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they ran the Simpsons. They also had the Simpsons as well. Um, which that is, that is didn't stick around, but for at first they definitely had the Simpsons. I think it was like ten, no, probably nine p.m. Eastern. I was in the Maritimes. At the yeah, time. that was in their. It was in their family. The family section of uh, Teletoon, not to be confused with the adult section of Teletoon, um, which was, I think, surprising, might be surprising to people in the U.S. because The Simpsons is rather notorious for, uh, until like less than 10 years ago, not being available to cable broadcasters in America. It was uh, like when The Simpsons was syndicated, that was a big deal. But whenever you found it syndicated in the U.S., it would only be on local networks really always be like this yeah the syndicated edits 
Because I remember it being on at five, five or five thirty on CBC for most yeah. of the nineties. But that's in Canada. In yeah. the U.S., it was a different story. Tell, I'm just like saying the, I didn't realize because of that. Yeah, the fact that like a cable network running uncut Simpsons every night was unthinkable in the U.S. until about ten years ago when FXX got the got the uh, the license. But for some reason, they made it available in Canada. Uh, I and so Teletoon got it. CBC aired it as well, but of course the CBC air it, um, version was edited for time, uh, quite badly as well. The Teletoon version was unedited, and then Comedy Network eventually swooped in and got that license from them. But they had that's it for, also they had one it for of the channels launched. That's the one we missed. The Comedy Com- Channel. They Com- launched Com- Comedy time. Network. Yeah, and also it's probably worth noting at that time that at this time these stations were not all owned by either Chorus or Bell. There were uh, there were other companies in the play. There was Chum. There was Alliance Atlantis. I actually have the list of who owned Teletoon up right now. I, I have the uh, the announcement of the yeah. network opening because you're talking about having so much adult content. But act the, the the companies that the companies that own this corporation are surprisingly like family and child oriented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 53% was owned by the Family Channel, 27% by YTV Canada, 10% by Nelvana, and only 10% by uh, Cinar Films, which probably explains a lot of the European imports. Yeah, Teletoon was a very weird consortium, and it was for many years as that's well. So, most of that's very ch- child-family-oriented uh, corporations. Yeah, and I think as time went on, Astral, or what became Astral, started to gain a lot of gain a lot of ownership of Teletoon, which was split with Chorus, and then eventually, in 2013, Chorus just took over the whole thing. The people who ran YTV once owned a just a piece of Teletoon, they now own the whole thing, and are just... The, the the stations are almost interchangeable at this point, uh, just with w- beyond whatever they choose to focus on. Mm. Um, but anime, anime was there from the start. Day, I don't know if it was day one, but certainly week one when Teletoon launched. For reasons mentioned before, they made sure that this was a part of their schedule. And I gotta say, uh, there's a there's a lot to be said for the choices, a lot to be asked <laughs> regarding the choices that they made in licensing content. Um, but they certainly picked some good titles, or rather, were given good titles by Manga Entertainment, who they made this initial deal with. Um, they had Ninja Scroll. They had Royal Space Force Wings of Hanayamis. They had Pat Labor the Movie 1 and Pat Labor the Movie 2. So, the issue is, with Teletoon, is that they licensed these four initial films. Also, they licensed Macross Plus, the OVA, also from Manga Entertainment. My understanding, again, I was not watching at this time. I did not. I did not actually see any of this anime until about 1999, when they broadcasted it at earlier times. But uh, when they first launched this stuff, it was pretty. I think it was pretty clear that they didn't really know what they were dealing with. They got a like a highly curated selection of excellent content, very excellent content. I don't think they realized how excellent the content they had was. Uh, they didn't know how to deal with it. So they had four movies and an OVA, and we're going to talk about... I'm not. We're not going to talk about Macross Plus today. That warrants its own episode. We'll do that later. Uh, we're just going to focus on those four films. But I don't think they understood, like, even the distinction between a movie and an OVA. They, they didn't know what, what they were dealing with a lot of the time. But it, it felt like they were trying, for sure, but kind of missing the mark. Do you remember... Like the initial advertising that ran for a lot of these uh, movies and OVAs? A lot of the times I ran into these shows, it was... I, I spent a lot of time on weekends as a teenager in high school on the internet with the uh, the TV turned on. And a lot of the stuff I just bumped into. And so I'm pretty sure my first watching of Pat Labor, for example, I was halfway through the first movie. Like, like it was already in progress on when I bumped it on TV. 
And furthermore, I didn't have a really good idea of when stuff would repeat, or it wasn't like today where you can hunt down exactly when something's going to air, know when to set it up, or everything's on demand now. But eventually it came around till I was able to like watch the entire set of movies all the way through. Yeah, to, to be honest, I actually did not watch any of these movies in their entirety when they first aired. Uh, they're all things that I kind of went back to later. Um, but awareness of these films was very high. At least I can I can say that anecdotally with people I knew in like middle school and high school. In um, high school, these movies were generally pretty talked about, especially yeah. with the crowd like Dragon Ball Z. They they really talked about uh, Ninja Scroll a lot because it's very much yeah. up their alley. In fact, they Ninja Scroll and Dragon Ball Z would air back to back a lot of the time because at that time Teletoon was running the first thirteen episodes of Dragon Ball Z over and over again at eleven thirty p.m. at night. Um, I, I go I go back to the, if you haven't listened to the Dragon Ball uh, the Canadian Dragon Ball Experience episode I did with Jeff Thu and Yazzie, uh, go check that out because I go on a whole rant about that there and how you know speculating on how that wound up there and how badly it was handled and why it kind of delayed Dragon Ball Z being a big success in Canada by by a few years but they were run, they were running Dragon Ball Z uh, at 11:30 but how they initially aired this content when the station first launched is that they would have a block at midnight every night designated as late night anime this also feeds into probably why you had a hard time finding this content a lot of that time because they would run at 12 p.m something called it would just be listed in tv listings only as late night anime regardless of the length of the the program they were running or the type of program they were running but it was just late night anime every night at midnight and it would be either one of the movies or one of those first three episodes of macross plus over and over and over again and this was basically the case for all of, like, 1997 well into 1998. As time went on, they started running promos for the individual content. And again, I can't, again, most of these ran late. I can't give first-hand accounts of how most of it was um, was played out. But if you can find some of those ads now, and they're, they're really interesting because you can tell that the people, at least the people cutting the ads, are really trying hard to understand what they're watching and how to explain it to the audience, and even explain or even try to convey why it's good. They don't understand like the context of any of this content, what it is, how it fits into other just Jap- Japanese animation in general. It, it almost seems like they just they watched these specific programs, these movies and OVAs, over and over and over again, trying to gain a better understanding of them, trying to decode them. And you you kind of see that in, in some of these ads. Um, not, not all of them are available, unfortunately. But, you know, never once did they think, hey, Macross Plus is technically a sequel to Robotech. Many people have seen Robotech. Maybe we should emphasize this connection somehow. No mention of that is ever made. Pat Labor 1 and 2. These are from the same director as Ghost in the Shell. And they stand alone. They stand on yeah. their own pretty well, unlike, yeah, Macross. Well, Macross Plus stands on its own, but did, did Robotech even, like, air in Canada much? Yeah, some, some local markets got oh, okay. it. It did not air nationally until 2006 when Space picked it up. But it, it, it aired in Canada in some markets. I don't okay. think I, I never saw it in Vancouver, but it could very well have aired before I was born. Yeah, my my first exposure to the actual show was on DVD. Yeah, yeah, it, it was not it was not as well distributed in Canada as it was in the United States, but it was known. It aired in some markets. A lot of people would have seen it. But the the sense that I get is that the people who were running Teletoon, the programming department, the marketing department, they wouldn't go beyond these handful of works. They would dive into the text as deeply as they could in some cases, um, and so, like they would produce some great work like that. 
one of the ads they made for Macross Plus, um, it's on YouTube. I actually made a little bit of a um, remastered version because there was some footage missing. Um, I've uploaded that onto, onto YouTube. You can find it there, and I show it at conventions sometimes. <laughs> it's a fantastic advertisement, but they don't understand what they're dealing with. They ran this content over and over and over again, but they never. there was never any indication that they would go back to manga entertainment and get more of this content and get more content to follow up um, with what they picked up. And it's so weird because if they had gone back to manga entertainment to get more, at this time, they may have picked up Ghost in the Shell. They may have picked up Perfect Blue. Like, this is content oh, that could have run on Canadian television. And I'm just imagining like, Perfect Blue on cable TV. I mean, I, th- I think that if Perfect Blue had been made available to them, they absolutely would have shown it. And I think that would have been amazing. It would have been it, it would have had such an impact if they had if they had run it here, just run it over and over again like they did with these other films. But, you know, that opportunity never really came up because they never would go beyond just these these four movies and and Macross Plus. I mean, that's such a missed opportunity. And I'm I'm still trying to wrap my head around how the licensing decision was made for this content, because it's worth it's worth noting um, space space also ran. Um, anime at the time. They, uh, that was Saturday afternoons, I think, or Sunday afternoons? It was kind of all over the place. They ran it in the afternoons, and they ran it after midnight. Uh, sometimes it had better time slots than what than the stuff on Teletoon, but I don't think nearly as many people saw it because it wasn't run as consistently, and it wasn't promoted as much. Um, in fact, I don't think they ever ran ads for the anime on Space, but there were always lots of ads for the anime on Teletoon. Um, and like different generations of the ads, there were the ads they ran the first couple years, the ads, the ads that they ran the last couple years when they were finishing up the licenses because they had these things for like four years. And it was mostly um, for for space. It was manga entertainment stuff they had mostly. Like I remember seeing Tank Police and Big Wars and some other yeah. weird stuff. And I think I maybe saw Gal Force. You did see Gal Force. Okay. Uh, they they space worked with more companies they got stuff from cpm they got stuff from manga entertainment they even got stuff from viz they ran galaxy express 39 it was kind of the same problem with them um space anime on space is something maybe we'll talk about another day <laughs> teletune just sort of dug themselves into this little pit with these with these specific films and i don't know if it's because they were legitimately not successful and they just tried everything they could or if they just picked up these films um to sort of fulfill the obligations that they set out in their proposal for the channel to begin with, and then just had no interest in moving beyond that. That kind of makes sense, because we never really saw much anime again. Um, it, is, it is worth noting that years later, around 2006, incidentally, around the time that Bionics was at its peak and other other stations were starting to dip into anime, they did run Akira and Armitage and the Appleseed films from Genion at that time. And hmm. they ran Akira a lot. They ran it like five or six times, and I'm willing to bet that more more people probably saw Akira on Teletoon than saw these four films and Macross Plus. But I still think that the like this initial batch of manga entertainment stuff had a a really specific kind of impact just because of how cable broadcasting was breaking through to audiences at that specific time. Content that ran at that time, I think, had a really resonated with people in a really interesting way that. If you were a certain age, the content you saw, stuff that you saw on basic cable at this time, I think it kind of sticks with you. Oh, definitely. In, in a way that, you know, stuff running in, on Teletoon in the middle of the 2000s probably doesn't. Just, just kind of going back to, like, your own experience uh, with finding these the, these films. Um, you, you saw this when you were in high school, and I think 
kind of go- going beyond that as well. You mentioned that this is, you know, this was content that people were talking about. This is content that was was sort of getting a lot of buzz among people your age at that time. Well, firstly, I think the time window is, it's interesting that the time window is actually a fair bit longer. Like, uh, yeah. in my high school, anime really started taking off as a thing. We'd like our little geek group around 2000, I think. Yeah. And we're still watching these movies because they are still on Teletoon four years later. And I almost wonder at the fact that they kept showing it as part of that grabbing traction. So it depended on which groups you want, like, were into it. Like I'm saying, many people who are fans of Dragon Ball Z were uh, fans of Ninja Scroll because it's very much in the same vein. Um, for me, though, like, Pat Labor just really struck with me. It was just interesting. It wasn't extremely violent. It had these robots and their police, but it's also, they never kill anyone in that show. The designer of the uh, hyper-operating system kills himself being in the first movie, but you never see these police kill anyone. They're always fighting robots. It's generally a non-violent show. And, well, movies, I guess. Yeah. I, it was some years until I could actually watch the TV series. Yeah, and that, that's another thing. I have no idea how successful Pat Labor 1, Pat Labor the Movie 1 and Pat Labor the Movie 2 were on television. In fact, I'm willing to bet that out of all four of these, Pat Labor 2 is probably the least popular. My um, my just, anime friends in high school were not huge fans of Pat Labor. That was yeah. the boring one in their eyes. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm going to fan sites and printing out art book scans and covering my math textbook and this stuff. So so you you found that Pat Labor was probably not it was neat. Yeah, but n- not something that you you could connect to other people with. For the longest time, I thought nobody else liked Pat Labor. There is there is a good-sized following for Pat Labor these days. People recommending they get the complete DVD sets, for, Blu-ray sets, sorry, were on sale and everything. And I didn't think this was a thing. Worth noting at this point right now, um, Sentai Filmworks, who just opened their store in Canada, uh, they are frequently dropping the price of Pat, the Pat Labor Complete Collection to like ridiculously low levels, like $25 U.S., if you if you don't own Pat Labor now is a very good time to purchase it. Just right stuff just is out blind of stock. Buy it, yeah. And right stuff says they're not going to restock. I would pay close attention to the Sentai store during their Black Friday sale in a few weeks. Yeah, not a bad idea. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, so but Pat Labor is something I think has really caught on recently. I think a big and we'll get into this a, a little later. Pat, Pat Labor is something that I think has become more relevant over time. I think people, I think the themes that you see in in that entire series, but especially the movies. Um, have definitely uh, become more important in retrospect. But yeah, again, again, they all four of these films just kind of created this 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 tapestry. But you know, it, it would have been so neat if if um, you know Teletoon had went beyond these works. Because with Pat Labor one and two, the obvious thing to do would be to try to get Ghost in the Shell because it's from the same director. Absolutely. Which is a, a fact that I don't think that they, at least mo- most people who were working hands-on with this content probably weren't even aware of. Or maybe they were. Maybe maybe, maybe Ghost in the Shell is what they wanted from manga entertainment, and this is the more affordable package that they offered them instead, and they just never went back. We can we can really only speculate until, you know, someone who worked there at the time comments directly on it. Likewise, if Pat, the Pat Labor movies had been successful, they could have gone to CPM and like picked up the OVA and, and, and TV series as well. There's enough um, episodes of that syndicate, though. I don't think... Oh, they didn't have dubs. Like, the, the all of Pat Labor was never completely dubbed to start with. Oh, really? I thought the uh, the OVA, at least, was, was dubbed. I think um, the first OVA is dubbed. There's a dub, I believe, 12 episodes into the TV series. And then the Blu-ray switched to subtitles only. Oh, okay. All and right. you have a bigger problem. You also need a French dub. Like, part of the reason this manga entertainment stuff was good for Teletoon is because manga entertainment is partially owned by Canal D in Europe, which is a French company, and there were French dubs available for all of these productions. So, 
all four of these movies did air in French on the French version of Teletoon as well. I'm pretty sure because they generally try to keep both Teletoon and Teletoon yeah. in, in, in sync. They did, and that again yeah. plays with uh, there. There was a French dub of Card Captors available. Yes, yes. Which is different. It's uh, I have one of them, the only Nelvana DVD they released, and it actually has the French Card Captor Sakura and the English Card Captor Sakura, but it's the France French Card Captor Sakura with like different yeah. alternate names. It's very weird. Yeah, they aired the France version of uh, of Card Captor uh, Sakura, but I think there was like a few differences. Like the opening theme was different on the version that Teletoon aired for some reason. But it would actually make perfect sense of why they would have gone for these particular titles. On that note, did did Manga Entertainment produce a French dub of of Ghost in the Shell? I would imagine that they did, given those circumstances. Yeah, because being a European company, they'd be. I'm actually not sure if I've, I've never actually listened to it. I'm admittedly making conjecture, but being yeah. a European company, you'd want to access France and some other regions. Okay. I'm pretty sure it was Canal D. Well, uh, you know what? I'll, I'll look into this when I'm editing the episode. Mm. Hey, everyone. Just popping in with a quick update as I edit the episode. After doing a little digging around, I can confirm that all four of these movies, as well as Macross Plus, did indeed air on the French version of Teletoon. Uh, however, as far as I can tell, uh, unlike what was stated in the episode, there was no connection between Canal D and Manga Entertainment. So as for French ownership or French connections with ownership, I can't really uh, confirm anything. But nonetheless, this does shine a lot of light onto why Teletoon made the specific decision to air these films and to work with Manga Entertainment in general. And that may have also contributed to why it was difficult to move on to other titles because they couldn't necessarily keep everything in sync. But of course, when you hit about the two th- the, the around the 2000s, uh, Teletoon went in pretty dramatically different directions in the way they handled their English adult-targeted lineup and their French adult-targeted lineup. Still, it would have been like seeing a franchise like Pat Labor grow would have been would have been cool to see on Canadian TV. I have to admit, when I purchased the Pat Labor Blu-rays, which were the original single case Blu-rays, like, you know, 12 episodes per box, which cost me, like, $350, I have to admit. I was thinking at the time, nobody likes Pat Labor. I don't know how long this license will last. I better get these as quickly as I can. Eight months later, after I spent, you know, more than $300, they're announcing a box set, which was 120 when it was released, which is a deal even at that price. And now, like, we've seen it for 25 they've probably come to, what, 35 40 after exchange and shipping to Canada? Yeah. Another thing we're pointing out about Sentai's, Sentai's store is that uh, there is no free shipping tier, unlike with right stuff. So uh, you're, you you may still be paying a lot of, for this stuff if you order it in, but it's available. You can get it's, it. Their shipping's not bad. I priced it out for 10 discs, and they wanted about 25 US for shipping. Okay. That's not terrible. Um, I, I still think most of these companies could be could be doing better or coming up with better ways to to make stuff accessible to Canada. I'm going to be rounding up some friends for that Black Friday sale. It's like, all right, guys, <laughs> I'm going to split this shipping and get ourselves $5 DVDs. That's how you do it. Um, one other thing I want to point out, we'll, we'll go into each of the individual films uh, in just a moment, but I do want to point out that all four of these films, Ninja Scroll, Royal Space Force, Pat Labor the Movie 1, and Pat Labor the Movie 2, are on high dive. So you can actually... All this, all of this content is available, and I believe actually uh, Macross Plus is on Tubi TV as well. Last I checked, um, so all the stuff that aired on Teletoon back in the day that I think a lot of people remember and cherish uh, to a degree is you can get it. It's available. Um, nothing's out of print. And if High Dive knew what they were doing uh, in terms of serving the Canadian audience, they would probably try to push this fact um, or try to promote this fact that these classics from Canada are available on their service, but I'm willing to bet that uh, High Dive and 
the companies that they work with probably don't even know what Teletoon is. Um, so again, another big missed opportunity in the, the modern anime, anime industry in terms of how you can reach the audience here better. But, uh, anyway, anything else you wanted to add just about, uh, painting the general picture of adult Teletoon content at this time before we, we kind of just d- dive into each individual film? Focusing on anime, not really. I, all I can say is that Teletoon is definitely not what it was back then. I don't think anyone would ever try to show some of the content that Teletoon was showing back then. There would be, outrage and Facebook groups and everything else then. And somehow they completely got away with it in, in like 97 till about 2000. Then they started shifting to like that much music kind of adult animation, undergrads, the oblongs, a few of those other shows. I I have to disagree with you on generating outrage based on the content that they run. I think the general public is pretty accepting of adult animation at this point. And I think that Teletoon they did push a lot of boundaries later on with stuff that they aired in, in subsequent years, um, especially when they when they aired stuff like Spawn, um, a lot of the live action movies they ran. I mean, they, they ran 300 uncensored, um, among among a few other things as well. But I think that these early years, Teletoon was much more experimental. They would run like 30 minute animated art, adult targeted art films, like un unscheduled in the the tv guide just randomly at like 9 30 p.m or 10 p.m at some points and i like i stumbled on those a couple of times and i just i did not understand what i was seeing and then they would just run that thing once and then never run it again in my opinion that's sort of what we've lost especially with these er, those early days of um not deep cable but sort of the midway between basic and deep cable on canadian tv was that that mad rush of experimentation that was going on with it with every broadcaster that I think is very memorable and has stuck with a lot of people. And that's a big reason why these particular movies have stuck with people, um, you know, especially people who are around our age. That is why I think these films and Macross Plus in particular have had a big impact. I probably wouldn't be much of a fan of Pat Labor if it wasn't for those movies, or I'd be one of those fans who's just coming into it now. Yeah, I mean, like, I didn't... I, the Pat Labor movies, I didn't watch at all. Or I watched maybe... I think I got maybe 20 minutes into Pat Labor 1 before 11-year-old Jesse just checked out on that one. But people talked about it, people remembered it, and just having that context of remembering that thing that aired on, on Teletoon when you were when you were 11 or 12 or 13 or 14 or somewhere so, somewhere in your early teens or mid-teens or late teens, and then, you know, you see people talking on, about Pat Labor later on social media, you kind of have a, you have a context. You kind of remember this is something that, oh yeah, this is this is a thing that was I this remember when nobody a, else this kind of this a thing. cool. Yeah, and you you kind of have a context to, to, to go back to and re-explore those things later. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I, I guess maybe I've kind of implied up to this point that these things were kind of beyond the reach of a lot of audiences, and I don't think that was the case because they, they were popular, and a lot of people remember them very dearly. So with that said, maybe let's just kind of dive into each one. Maybe we'll start with the most accessible one, which I think is the one... Most people probably saw and remembered, which was Ninja Scroll. Have you watched Ninja Scroll recently, Ashley? Recently, no. I've seen it a few times, and I've let a lot of the stuff on Teletoon, I've bumped into different parts of it at different times as it was airing. But yeah, that was definitely probably the most violent OVA they had. Oh, absolutely. It was extremely violent. There is sexual violence. There is nudity. There is all the things that your mother didn't want you to see. Crazy things with bees. My mother never knew I was watching that stuff. I wouldn't tell her. <laughs> yeah. A, a guy with a, a a wasp hive on his back. You got a, a snake popping out of a woman's vagina. All the good stuff. Heat bugs, those creep me out. But I have to say that 
Ninja Scroll is probably the most anime anime film they show there. Like in terms of the stereotypical view of Japan yeah. animation as it was at that time, it was really well animated, edgy, it had sex in it, it had a lot of violence in it. Like this is what people thought of when they thought exactly what anime was at the it, time. It validated every stereotype and it was glorious. If you wanted uh, your mom to hate anime, show her Ninja Scroll. But hey, that's not to say Ninja Scroll was trash. It's an awesome movie. Yes. You know, it has just enough plot to keep things moving along and interesting. The character designs are gorgeous. The animation is gorgeous, especially the recent HD remaster. Be sure to check that out if you haven't. Um, it's directed by Yoshiaki Kawajiri, who you may know for Vampire Hunter D, Bloodlust. Um, he also did Wicked City. You know, a lot, a lot of people like that one. Wind Named Amnesia was another film he directed. And I think this is probably one of his strongest works that he's done. It's, it's easy to dismiss it as being just, you know, mindless sex and violence, but um, it's a, you know, really well-produced series of boss battles, essentially. Um, I think my only criticism of it is that, you know, there's so many neat, inspired, really creative fights that take place in this movie, and lo- lots of really interesting characters. None of them really seem to get as much screen time as they should. A lot, a lot of the, the big fights, just they're over before they even feel like they got started. You know, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but this is what a lot of the thirst was for back in the 90s, and I think it, it scratched mm. that itch well. Um, worth noting that Ninja Scroll did eventually air on American TV as well. Um, sci-fi ran it. Edited version of it, of course, um, in the mid-2000s. But, and Ninja Scroll is, is really notable because, you know, it was a huge title in English-speaking countries. For many people, it was up there with Akira and Ghost in the Shell. Oh, absolutely. One of those titles that kind of defined the 90s perception of anime as something being for adults. I feel like manga entertainment's advertising was, like, all like that. They're, they're KDM, yeah. KDMFM, what is that band? KMFDM. Yeah. They're like a heavy metal band. And they would, German industrial, according to Wikipedia. Sorry. Um, and, and they would do these four-minute music videos promoting all the manga stuff. You'd see it on their uh, DVDs and such. And it's all, like, hyper-violence kind of anime. All approved by Manga Man. Yeah. He embodies the spirit of everything Ninja Scroll represents. One other positive thing, it was important in every English-speaking country, but Canada is the only country where this one aired on TV. So it had a particular strong impact and strong resonance with with viewers here because of that, which is a detail I think kind of gets forgotten now, unfortunately. And and this was just two years after the movie was released in English as well. It came out in 1994, dubbed in 1995. Two years later, it was on TV in Canada. The same can't be said for any other country, really. And I think that contributed a lot to Ninja Scroll's reputation as something that was representative of anime back in the 90s, because it was just so... it was so accessible. And having all that buzz from a Canadian broadcast definitely played played a big role in that, I think. Not much else to say about Ninja Scroll. Definitely the most accessible of the four films, but it's good. It's good stuff. Go check it out if you haven't, or if you don't remember it. Next movie is something that I, uh, it's still kind of shocking that Teletoon ran this, and they ran it so many times, so consistently, so many people saw it due to the Canadian broadcast, because this is a film that has a reputation for not being well-known or appreciated. That is Royal Space Force Wings of Hanayamis, or just Wings of Hanayamis as it was promoted at that time. Wings of Hanayamis was the first real production that Gainax put out. It was directed by Hiroyuki Yamaga, who is one of the co-founders of 
Gainax, he didn't direct anything else until Mahoromatic in 2002. But he, you know, he was also the screenwriter for Gunbuster, for Gundam 0080, the best of the Gundams, for sure. And I think he's actually, I think he's actually more well known for those than he is for actually directing Royal Space Force, which, you know, just shows how kind of unappreciated the movie is. Royal Space Force is also the prequel to Blue Uru, which, as we all know, is coming any day now. Not really. Uh, that movie has been in production hell for, for many years, and we will never see it, especially with the current state of Gynax. But yeah, Royal Space Force was like a huge risk, because it was Gynax's first like real major work, and was also being financed by Bandai, who was trying to get into producing movies at that time. An exceptional amount of work went into this film, and it was a huge flop. And it's usually regarded as something that was not well-known or appreciated. So I think that puts a lot of significance to the fact that it got this big mainstream exposure through through a teletoon broadcast in a station that so many people were watching again with the the problem with cable tv is the first time i saw it it was maybe the last 25 minutes so i have no contextual information for why there's like a war going on as these people are trying to launch a rocket into space and eventually it comes back on tv and i'm able to see it from the beginning but it, it's very interesting as sometimes your first exposure to something is completely in the middle of it yeah because there's no choosing when your t- cable TV starts. It's, it's when you happen to tune in. Between the three movies, remaining movies to talk about, I'd say it's the second most artsy, the second most talking, talky kind of movie, yeah. which is probably why it doesn't have the same impact as Ninja Scroll, which is much more action. But it is beautiful. It is like this amazing mechanical design. And you don't see a space race in anime very often. You see like deep sci-fi, like Gundam and stuff, but this is very much about just trying to get into orbit, which is a topic that anime doesn't really deal with very often. Yeah, and it's trying to do it from the perspective of a completely fictional civilization. Yeah. Which is something that I think is going to be very weird for people, especially if you've never seen anime. Royal Space Force is something that you'll go into thinking that maybe you're missing something or you're missing some kind of context. What country is uh, this? <laughs> yeah, what country is this? What is this trying to, to represent? Were they really the first ones to go into space? What's going on here? A lot of that was my reaction when I first watched it. Again, 11-year-old Jesse made it, I think, maybe 40 minutes into Royal Space Force. Um, I, did, I didn't make it all the way through, which is, is too bad, because I think jumping in at the end might be the best way to experience it. Oh, yeah, because after you've seen all that, you're like, whoa, how do we get here? Rewind. Astounding climax in that movie. Watching it the other night, I was just amazed that this, this aired on Teletoon. And also, it's, it's kind of weird, because they, they work so hard to create this completely fictional civilization that is supposed to be beyond anything that we know or understand in our own world. But a lot of the times, it still just comes off as a weird version of of japan or urban life in japan like one scene near the end where they're they're in a transportation facility but it's just a weird version of a subway station in japan Mm. basically and when you're looking at it from the perspective of someone outside of japan where uh, the layout of of a subway station is so normalized it kind of puts a a weird spin on it and i think that kind of thing feeling you're missing some kind of japanese context i think that's probably something that a lot of people felt while while watching royal space force but I'm still surprised by how many people did watch this movie and talk about this movie, even in, like, high school. This was something that people were still talking about, I found. I have friends from high school broadcast. who still talk about it. A lot of them have, like, formulated a better appreciation for it as they grew older. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It, it is kind of frustrating. How, I, I mean, you know, we all know Carl Horn uh, from Dark Horse Entertainment, who is the uh, whose goal in life is to spread the good word of Royal Space Force. He's been doing it at conventions for many years. I, I kind of share his frustration that this film was so underappreciated because, I mean, you you compare it to, say, Nasuko, The Valley of Wind or 
Lapita Castle in the Sky, which are the two Studio Ghibli movies that it was essentially sandwiched in between when it was released in Japan. It is far better than either of those films, but it's, you know, one that doesn't get a lot of love and took a lot of, took a long time to break even as well. But I, I remember actually speaking of Carl Horn many years ago in an anime evolution. He, he attended, I think, at like the last anime evolution in 2009 or something. He did a panel talking about Royal Space Force, and he was completely taken aback when he was told that the movie aired on a basic cable channel in Canada over and over again, completely unedited as well. Uh, which which really which really shocked him, and he was he was happy <laughs> to know that. I don't think Teletoon ever edited anything. Like maybe they do now, but they don't. In fact, to Teletoon's credit, they never edit anything intended for an adult audience. Yeah, I think at most they cut the sides off to make it four by three, but that's it. They would receive a movie that way if mm. it was yeah. if it was pan and scan. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, all three of the uh, Ninja Scroll was produced in four by three, but I think the other the other three films all aired in widescreen when they ran on Teletoon as well. Am I right, or am I... Uh... You are right, I remember, yeah. because my my first anime music video was on the Pat Labor 1 and 2. They used footage captured off of cable TV, and yeah, I remember it's widescreen, and there's, there's yeah. the Teletoon logo halfway into the uh, the letterboxing. I think the only the only instance I can think of Teletoon ever editing anything, I know they did run Naruto in the mid-2000s, not in English, in French, hmm. and they would run the uncut version during their adult hours, and they ran a version of Naruto, the, the France dub of Naruto, that was edited very badly, um, I mean, much much more shoddily than the YTV version was edited, during the day, targeted at children, and even then, that was, again, editing for children and not for adults. But I think that's the only instance I can think of Teletoon ever doing edits themselves hmm. in-house. But yeah, they never in the in the history of that station did they do any in-house editing for any adult content. On that note, with Royal Space Force, um, it always drives me off the wall when people say, you know, criticize the attempted rape scene um, later in the film. I think some international versions did edit that out, and there was a common sentiment, especially like in the 2000s, when people say that it's a unnecessary scene and the movie's better without it. And that is ri- a ridiculous notion because it's like one of the most important parts of the film, hmm. and it's like that's the thing that the main characters kind of ruminating about for the the rest of the movie and drills home that theme of if humans are garbage what is the what is the value of faith and it's it's so amazing that the movie has this complex theme of faith and morality especially when you consider that Hiroyuki Yamaga when he directed it he was he was 24 and he wrote and directed it and i i can't believe that someone so young was able to make a film so insightful. And when it comes to things like the sexual assault scene, it's like it's very easy to not give him the benefit of the doubt. A young guy working in the boys' club to end all boys' clubs, but every part of that film is handled so well with such great consideration for like its central theme, and it's kind of amazing. And it's kind of sad that uh, Yamaga never really directed much, never directed much in the same in the same vein. Still amazing. These early years of Teletoon first launching. With their with their adult block is a place where this thoughtful rumination on 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 humanity and faith and morality could reach maybe maybe one of the most mainstream audiences it had ever been able to reach in any country. It still kind of pains me that no one el- like no one ever really takes advantage of the the notoriety that the film gained in that Canadian context. Because again, like obviously it's it's not a huge mainstream smash hit. Yeah, that's that's about as good as it's gonna get for a movie like Royal Space Force. If you compare the United States to Canada, I think that there's generally more cable subscriptions than there was uh, in the United States, simply yeah. due to our low population density. So there are a lot more households to add access to this stuff. In the United States, there's plenty of places you can live and you can get ten TV channels over the air. There's plenty of Canadians where they'll be lucky to get more than CTV and CBC 
over the air. I grew up in Labrador. There wasn't even CBC out there. You, everyone had cable in Labrador. A lot of that stuff's able to reach a larger audience, like per capita, I think, than it would have yeah. in the United States. That's that's another thing I, I probably should have touched on in the beginning is that ca- cable has had a more important history in Canada compared to the compared to the U.S. because there's so many regions in Canada where over-the-air television is just not viable. Yeah. Um, due to geography. Like I'm here in Toronto now, and I can even get American channels from across the lake. It's not a problem, but unfortunately, that that geographic reality eventually evolved into. This current um, notion we see in Canada where everyone believes that the only way you can get television is through cable or satellite, um, yeah. uh, which is which is really unfortunate. People in Canada fundamentally don't understand television. They don't understand that most places in the world you still use an antenna, and antennas are awesome and better than ever now. Uh, but that entire infrastructure is being eroded uh, just thanks to these, these decades of cable company propaganda. Uh, but yeah, what can you do? I mean, you can get by pretty, pretty well here in Toronto, but like... Oh, yeah. The CN Tower is a television tower. It is the tallest object here. You, there's like seven different networks broadcasting off of it. Yeah, I mean, like, even here in Vancouver, the geography is not optimized as it should be hmm. for over-the-air television. I can't, I can't use an antenna in my house where I live right now, unfortunately, which which kind of which kind of sucks. Yeah, anyway, that's another reason why this late 90s spurt of, uh, of new cable channels is so significant. Most Canadians so significant, yeah. can tell you that they watch Teletoon. You go to Americans, and not everyone's family was pick, uh, putting up the money to get a Cartoon Network. For much of the 90s in the U.S., cable was, a, it was an unnecessary expense. Whereas in Canada, it was a necessary expense in many places if you wanted to get any TV, or if you wanted, or at best, get more than than CBC and a, and a couple of other channels. Mm-hmm. That said, let's move on to I think which is probably going to be what you have the most to say about, which is Pat Labor. So Ashley, can, can you explain Pat Labor? You can probably do it much better. I can than do I can. it. Like, like what, 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 like where did it start? What is this whole project? How do we get these movies? I'm going to start by saying that Pat Labor one and two. Like, together as a package are terrible to represent the series. The first movie is very good. The first movie is basically a big, long episode of the OVAs. And it came out following the first three OVAs. The TV series actually came out after it. So it's just, like, it introduces you to all the characters. They're kind of antics. The tone generally matches the rest of the franchise. And it's it's just a very good introduction to this franchise. And I think it's to speak about both of these movies together, because Pat Labor 2 is the complete opposite of that. Pat Labor 2 was the end of the franchise. The film was released in 19... It was 1992. 93. 93, okay. The main characters, like Noah and Shinohara, are barely seen in it. It's the secondary characters who are seen most of the time, except during the climax and the opening. It is like a Tom Clancy movie. The way you think numbering works for a TV show, this is the first one and this is the second one. So this should be a direct sequel to each other, but like everyone's moved on from their careers, and Japan is trying not to fall into a civil war. Like... People in my high school did not really like Pat Labor 2, to, to sum it up. It was just dry, boring politics, whereas the first movie is very colorful and very interesting, and they have completely different energies. Pat, Pat Labor 2, I mean, much like Beautiful Dreamer was for um, with Urusa Yatsura, which was, these films were directed by Mamoru Oshii, yes. who is pr- prolific philosophical navel gazer and occasional anime director, but he's a very good anime director, and Pat Labor is, is kind of, I don't know if it's his franchise, but he directed. He directed uh, the it, films, but there was a, a, a group of artists called Headgear who did Headgear, it. Yeah. He's like not in Headgear anymore. and He's one of the people who started Headgear. Yes, and that's also why the live-action series has alternates for all the characters. They have very similar-sounding names. It's kind of silly. And with Pat Labor 2, again, much like Beautiful Dreamer, 
he's almost using the that Pat Labor franchise that he worked on as a springboard for doing a completely different kind of movie. Oh, completely. It's, yeah. it's this message of uh, post-economic boom, Japan. It's very dark. It's it's such a blue movie too, like in terms of overall color tone. Uh, very, very much. It's the, these two films are a huge contrast, and par- pairing them together is definitely weird. But they're often paired together because they're Pat Labor the movie, and one, they were and licensed the together. Because CPM, they had the TV series. Yeah. And that's why the original OVA was my first eBay purchase. Yeah, Pat Labor the movie. It is a good introduction to the series. I think it is better if you watch the OVA first. You at least get a little... You get a, you get an introduction to the characters and just the kind of conceit behind it. And if you're not familiar with Pat Labor, the idea is... It's robots in the context of Japan... Um, civil servants. The Japanese society primarily uses these robots for construction, but they're also used for other purposes, military, uh, fire and rescue and stuff. But because there is all these robots around, some people often, some people will commit crimes using robots. So the police have their own robot unit to stop the criminal robots. So it's basically about Japanese cops, which means they don't shoot people very often. Yeah, and they wear very stylish uniforms. I'm trying to get one of those made for a cosplay. I think they look yeah. pretty good. They're pretty cool. Yeah, and I think get, getting into Pat Labor, it's uh, Pat Labor the movie one is a, is a is a good introduction, but you kind you do kind of have to have a an understand uh, at least a basic maybe not understanding but familiarity with Japanese civil servant culture, which is very different yes. there compared to here. There's there's this kind of weird reverence and I want to say this sort of discipline that is embedded into being a civil servant in Japan, mm-hmm. even though, you know, obviously there's a lot of problems uh, with with, inst- with various institutions in, in Japanese society, as with any society. But it, it's sort of baking that into into the concept of, of mecha uh, in this in this show. And it's, it's kind of taking the real robot concept that started with Gundam to it to an extreme. I don't think it had been to or been in before. It's almost um, not an extreme. Like, it's the complete antithesis of an extreme. When it was on TV, YTV was showing Gundam Wing and stuff. Like, that. that is, again, a very anime anime. The idea of giant robots in Japan, Gundam Wing very much fits that, that, uh, that uh, cookie-cutter design. And one of the things that made the movie appeal to me so much is because it is so not that. These robots are primarily machines in that society. They're, like, the very idea of them being weapons is so secondary. It's very much more about the characters rather than their usage of these robots. Yeah, and this film in particular, it didn't really jive with me too much uh, back in the early days. It's very much something that I went back to later. But actually, I forgot to mention in the beginning the reason I didn't do an uh, episode of the podcast last month was because I went to Japan and I had a great time. And and, and I went back to watch this movie again after my, I got back from my trip. And I have I have a deeper understanding of it now because I now have a better familiarity with this concept of, of urban development mm. and reclaimed land in Japan, which is something we talk about a lot in Pat Labor. And of course, re- reclaimed land in Japan um, doesn't have the same connotation that that term has in, in North America or in the West with um, like indigenous land and stuff. It's reclaimed land. It is literally land that has been recovered from underwater and it, it, I, my understanding is it's, it's propped up using things like like waste and garbage, mm-hmm. and they use and they do this to basically create new islands or new uh, new coastal land that they can develop. Isn't Narita Airport even technically on an artificial island? Like I, they just put I that in the middle is, of the bay. Yes. Yeah, and uh, I, when I was in Japan, I was in an area called Rinku Town, which is right near um, which is right near the uh, Kansai Airport. 
uh, and that that's all uh, reclaimed land that is uh, under development. Like the hotel I stayed at, it was uh, one of those henna hotels that is supposed to be run by robots, but really they just have a couple of dinosaurs up at the front, and then, uh, then everyone there's actual humans. You oh, it's all a fraud for everything else. It is, it, it, yeah, it is very much. Um, we, we were duped. It was, it was fun though. Uh, I, I, I like that hotel. We got, uh, we got Wowo and Animax there, but the hotel was like a. 15-minute walk away from the station, and to get there, you had to walk through this entire big flat area that was currently being developed. I'm sure when it's all done, it'll be filled with, like, convenience stores and and karaoke places and all the stuff you'd find in any area in Japan, but it was all just empty and under development, which is something I hadn't seen anywhere else in Japan, and that's because that's what they do with this um, reclaimed, these reclaimed areas. And I will say that when I was in Rinku Town, the areas that had been built up and developed because they're very like this is all like within the last 10 years i think that they've barely been developing this area it reminded me more of vancouver than anywhere else i went to in japan uh which is kind of troubling because whereas here in uh in, in north america as we see more and more developments look more like what you find in asia over in asia a lot of newer developments look more and more like what you find here <laughs> so everything worldwide is becoming super super homogenized which is an idea that fits very well into the uh, into the theme of Pat Labor One, which is really criti- critical of of capitalism and development and tearing things down just to build them back up again and recovering land just for the sake of developing and just keeping that cycle going endlessly. Themes that were absolutely relevant back in the in the late '80s when the first movie was was first made, especially in in Japan when I think there was a lot of that kind of activity going on. Oh yeah, because the '80s had basically been that whole yeah. economic boom and. Then it kind of stalled out at the beginning of the 90s, but the, the, the first movie's from 89, so you have just all of this rapid change in Japan. And it's set in 1998. The I- idea is not that it's supposed to be the distant future, but it's supposed to be that the, the creation of labors. Um, I'm still waiting. Accelerated, yeah, but the, the, creation of, the idea is that the creation of labors accelerated societal development so much that... You can get to that point in in 1998, but it's not not a great future because it's just more of the same shit happening, just at a at a higher velocity. But but yeah, it's looking back on these movies, the themes in both films, but like I'm talking about Pat Labor One right now, mm-hmm. we're, we're just seeing more of the kind of stuff that was talked about in Pat Labor One becoming more and more inescapable in our everyday lives. Um, and just perpetuating itself endlessly. It's it's uh, depressing. It's hard to pinpoint exactly how accessible this would have been for a lot of viewers uh, back in, in the late 90s watching Teletoon. But... Definitely more accessible than the second one. <laughs> yeah, probably more accessible than the second movie. Now, many people have said that Pat Labor 2, the movie, is one of the best works to come out of the 90s. And I do agree with that for sure, but I don't think anyone actually would have said that in the 1990s. I think that in a post-9-11 world, the themes in Pat Labor 2 definitely seem more more resonant now. Absolutely. Um, especially outside of Japan, because we're, we're, I mean, the Pat Labor 2 is it's essentially applying the ideas that we saw play out after 9-11 with, with, ter- with terrorism and the response to terrorism and the way it affects society. But it played out in a Japanese context in Pat Labor 2. And now we've just seen the same thing happen kind of in a, in a different social context since then, which really just shows how uh, how in tune uh, Mamoru Oshii really is when he when he comes to the um, political intrigue. Mm. I, I, I think Pat Labor 2 is probably where the name Pat Laboring came from. Because <laughs> people who were looking... I hadn't heard that one before. Oh, really? I've had Dave Merrill yeah. cited to me a few times. <laughs> Anyway, people were looking for a certain thing when they were getting an anime, especially in that era, and that movie was not it. That was the closest thing 
to a Tom Clancy movie there could be in anime, which I think is like what a lot of people at that time were trying to get away from. They're looking for something kooky and interesting like they've never seen before. And in a lot of ways, Pat Labor is like a lot of Western movies. Yes, but it's animated and in a social context that Western audiences will oh, not completely, be but... with. <laughs> yeah, and, and also just its commentary on the, the general complacency of the 1990s is, is another thing that you look back on it now and just like, wow, this... This movie from 1993 just had it all figured out back then. And, and just the whole idea that they keep going on about with, with just war and unjust peace. Mm-hmm. Wow, like, you, you decoded the 90s. You defined the 90s when they had barely started. It's astounding. <laughs> yeah, the Gulf War was probably still going on when that film was in yeah, production. Yeah, it, it would have been, yeah. yeah. It would have been over uh, by the time it released, but uh, it takes like two years to make one of those things. Out of the four movies, I think this was probably the the most polished and visually stunning, at least in terms of production quality. Oh, completely. Again, Wing, Wings of an Amy's Royal Space Force was a high-level production for, for its time, for sure. But Pat Labor 2 is... It just it just has that, that slick level of uh, realism that Mamoru Oshii, you know, would carry on with in all his films. In fact, it's very... He's edging right into what we'd see in, in Ghost in the Shell hmm. just a couple years later. I believe that was his next film after this, too. So speaking of these four movies, I know the Pat Lee movies, their dub is effectively dead. Unless you have the Blu-rays or a pirated... Sorry, the D, the old manga entertainment DVDs yeah. or a pirated copy, those dubs are dead. For uh, Ninja Scroll... Just... Oh, did I just read your mind? I, I was just going to mention, yeah, the, the Pat Labor 1 and 2, they were dubbed in the UK mon- by Manga UK, the same uh, the same geniuses that brought us the Mad Bull 34 dub. Pat Labor 1 and 2, I don't I don't think they were as um, liberal with the uh, unnecessary swearing as a lot of Manga UK dubs were. <laughs> Um, but yeah, those dubs are gone. They're they're just gone forever now. They're they will they are not in circulation. I don't think Bandai Visual wants them released. I'm pretty sure the reason they were redubbed uh, by Bandai Visual USA back in the the mid 2000s was because they were of course dubbed in the UK, so they were dubbed at 24 frames per second, which is very difficult to sync properly with with the uh, the standard frame rate you find in Japan mm-hmm. and North America. Uh, you can do it. It is it is entirely possible, but sometimes it's easier just to tear the whole thing down and do it again from scratch. You mean twenty five frames though? Twenty oh twenty four. Twenty five would be PAL. Okay, whereas yeah, sorry, film 25. is twenty four. The the yeah the 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 PAL frame rate of twenty five frames per second, which you find in the UK, it's not unreconcilable, but it's difficult to work with. So the other two films though, are their dubs still accessible, or they have a new newer dubs? I can't remember. No, nope, they they are they are. Ninja Scroll was dubbed in LA, has the same dub it always has. Okay. Royal Space Force, it is the same dub. Let me just. Um, and I know some of these have like three dubs. Yeah. Like like Akira has been dubbed yeah. so many times. Yeah. Ro- Ro- yeah. Royal Space Force uh, was dubbed um, in a- in LA as well. It has Brian Cranston in it. Uh, he was one of the minor characters. <laughs> that might explain why he was also in Macross Plus. They were, uh, they were, they were of the same pedigree, um, for sure. Um, and also, well, one other thing I wanted to mention about the Royal Space Force dub, uh, one of the most amazing things about that movie is that they actually develop an entire language for it for one of the, to one of the um, enemy societies or one of the enemy countries. In the English dub, they that language is not maintained at all. They just dub over them, hmm. and they're just speaking English. If I'm remembering correctly, that's how it aired on Teletoon, right? Uh, I'm, I'm t- honestly couldn't remember that accurately. Okay. Cause it's, it's weird because they dub over that, that other language, but you still have the Japanese subtitles on the bottom. So that, that contributes to the confusion that you would get from watching that movie. And that, that general idea that maybe you're missing, maybe I'm missing something. Am I missing something here? 
And in that case, you are missing something, and it just makes it really confusing uh, why there'd be those Japanese subtitles there when those characters are speaking. I find that decision really weird, especially when they, near the beginning of the film, they're singing a military chant, and the Japanese track is kept intact for that, that singing portion. But they couldn't keep the Japanese track intact for the entire language that they invented for the film. And you think that would have been a foreign language right there for them, right? Yeah, I don't understand that decision at all. It is it is incredibly weird. But yes, the uh, Ninja Scroll and, and Royal Space Force LA-produced dubs still intact today. I believe both directed by Kevin Seymour, um, who we, we of course lost uh, about seven or eight years ago. But yeah, they are... They are still in circulation. They probably always will be the dubs for those films because mm. L.A. dubs always seem to win. But yeah, for the in the case of Pat Labor 1 and 2, it's uh, definitely unfortunate because those manga UK dubs are an important part of, of anime history in the UK. And that whole sort of history is being erased for, for, for so many productions from that time. Too bad. Mm. Yeah, you're going to have to dig up old discs on DVD or from old friends or use sales somewhere to really experience some of those old dubs. Yeah. The the old release of uh, Royal Space Force from manga had a an entire audio commentary with Yamaga on it um, that I actually still have not heard to this day. I should see if I can find that somewhere. So, Ashley, did you have any other thoughts on anime on Teletoon from this uh, from this lost era? Honestly, not a lot, but it is it is definitely significant, and it's an interesting collection of films that I don't think like Americans could have related to to seeing on TV. So it just yeah. makes this very Canadian experience for watching this anime early on, especially because it's right around the late 90s to about 2000, 2001, before they started shifting their content. So this is yeah. right as anime blew up in North America. I mean, in the States, the closest equivalent probably would have been the stuff that ran on sci-fi. And again, that was more in line with what we were seeing on space at the time. Oh, like, totally. Uh, yeah. And I mean, in the States, they ran things like, like the Fatal Fury movie and um, and Big Wars and and uh, Project Echo, mostly stuff from the 80s, mostly like OVAs, mostly highly censored, and it was a big contrast from what was running on Teletoon, which didn't really have an equivalent at that time. And again, Macross Plus and Ninja Scroll, they did eventually air on US TV later, but like Royal Space Force, Pat Labor, Pat Labor Two, those never showed up. And I don't think they ever got the le- like the level of notoriety mm. with uh, with with a broader audience in in most other countries compared to to Canada. So that's that's neat. I think it's an important thing that I think more people remember than we might at first acknowledge. But yeah, it's an important little piece of Canadian uh, anime fandom history that I think uh, should be observed. And uh, of course, another part of that is Macross Plus which we will cover in a future episode because I need a little more time to prepare for this. And we threw this episode together <laughs> over the course of a weekend. So, um, Ashley, uh, I think that uh, that pretty much wraps us up. Right. So where can uh, where can people find you on social media or elsewhere on the internet? I'm pretty much only using Twitter these days. So I have a Twitter account at Ashley Uncia, and I'm basically just shitposting, quite frankly. Nothing wrong with that. You get, it gets you a lot of followers, and uh, yeah, thanks for listening to Zone in Canada. I am your host, Jesse Betteridge. You can find me on Twitter at jbetteridge or email zonincanada at gmail.com. The theme song is by Ultra Kleistron. You can find that on his album Packet Flood at ultrakleistron.com. If you know anyone who might be interested in this podcast, please recommend it to them. See you again.